Now entering Nerdist.com. Welcome to the Writers Panel. Happy spring. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to other writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than a thousand writers on the show, so please check the archives to find more writers and more TV shows of interest to you. I've written a bunch of things. Uh, With my writing partner, Ben Acker, I was on the writing staffs of Supernatural, Puss in Boots, some other shows. We sold a bunch of pilots over the years as well, and we have a couple of things cooking right now, which I thought I'd be able to tell you about by now, but I can't. Um, So keep listening, and as soon as I can talk about these things, I will, because I'm very excited about them. Meantime, you can check out some comics we've written, uh, including the Last Jedi tie-in comics from Marvel called The Storms of Crate and DJ Most Wanted. We also did Deadpool v. Gambit over at Marvel, and our creator-owned Death Be Damned, uh, which is a supernatural western from Boom Studios. We co-wrote it with our pal Andrew Miller, who is, uh, he made the new Tremors pilot most recently for sci-fi. Uh, you can also listen to the live show and podcast that Acker and I wrote and produced for 10 years. It's called The Thrilling Adventure Hour, and it's available via iTunes and Nerdist. Also, check out the podcast Dead Pilot Society, which is a show I produce with Friends writer Andrew Reich. In it, we take pilots that have been bought and developed by networks but never shot, and we get these incredible casts to read them live. And pertinent to writers' panel listeners' interest, we also talk with the writers about how the process went wrong. Or sometimes didn't. Sometimes it just stopped abruptly. Anyway, that's Dead Pilot Society, and it's on the Maximum Fun Network. For now, I'd really like to hear from you. What writers haven't I had on the podcast that you'd like to hear from? What am I not asking that you want to know about? Email me at nerdistwriters at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. Like the Writers Panel on Facebook and visit writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Uh, It's very helpful in the rankings, which is something I need to consider, especially right now as some changes are being made. What are they? Again. I can't tell you. But as soon as I can, you, dear listener, will be the first to know. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! Welcome, you guys. Uh, I'm going to have you introduce yourselves uh, on the microphone so the listeners can differentiate your voices, starting with you, Andrew. I am Andrew Logan. And uh, these dulcet tones are uh, Taylor Allen, co-writer. <laughs> Thank you guys for being here. You're the co-writer, uh, co-writers of Chappaquiddick, which is out now or soon. Out Somehow. on April 6th. Yeah, well, I don't know when I'm, this is going out. Uh, around then. Um, congratulations on having a movie made. Thank you. Why did you guys write this movie? Uh <laughs> I'm going to give you the long version of the story because I feel like for the first time I actually have some space in answering this question and it doesn't need to go into newsprint and like, you Mm -hmm. know, a paragraph. Uh, Failure. Uh, (laughs) We had both been writing with other writing partners and had been writing in very different genres. And I had been trying to write sketch comedy. I loved Mr. Show growing up and I just knew that that was why I needed to move to L.A. was to create the next great sketch show and uh i took sketch writing at ucb and was immediately told that all of them had too many stories and that there was an arc in every single three-page thing where a person had to change and it was like really it should just be funny 
And I'm like, I'm not very good at that. That's trouble. That's bad sketch writing. Uh, and so then I moved on to trying to write TV specs and um, had a writing partner for that. It was focused on the 30-minute comedy thing. And again, uh, even though more people thought those were funny, there was still problems in terms of just like form and like, yeah, when you turn in a 60-page Simpsons spec, they're like, you know, usually these things are like, 30 pages at most. Okay, let me stop you here. Yeah. How, how did that happen? Like, how, did, how did you write you, a 60 page? Were you page not system? looking at other scripts and, and trying to emulate these? Were you trying to break the form as you sort of did with the sketch stuff, maybe wittingly or not? Definitely unwittingly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the Simpsons script, it was that I had worked on the show as a PA and then an editor for about eight years at that point. And that I was just bursting with ideas Mm -hmm. and really wanted to get them all in there. Mm -hmm. And even after like a rewrite or two of that script, it was just structurally inherent to the idea, something that was too big for one episode. And so, you know, that was deemed another failure. And then I'll let Andrew tell you a little bit about his adventures in the screen trade prior to. Yeah, so I... um in terms of uh, failure, I had written two scripts that uh, had not really done anything, and again, very different from what we ended up working on together with Chapel Quidditch. Feature scripts, though? feature film scripts. One was a horror movie. Um, I was working for writers, and uh, they had an idea about a horror a horror film, and they were like, "You can run with this idea if you want, and um, if if it's any good, we can you know take it out to the market, and we'll be producers on it." And so those writers ended up producing Rise of the Planet of yeah. the Apes, and were the writers of uh, Jurassic World. So he was like, "I'm going to do this horror idea, even though I've never watched a horror movie." Um, That's fair. I mean, you see the opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're they're amazing people, and they've been really great mentors to me, even to the day, even till today. Um, but I did not know anything about horror, wasn't very passionate about the genre, and the script very much reflected that. Wait, how? So I would love to hear about that. (laughs) I really genuinely think that as you prepared to write that movie, you're like, I'm going to watch Halloween and The Exorcist. I watched every, like, classic horror movie, like, like, for, like, two or three months, um, and very esoteric horror movies, just because I thought that I needed to. You watched Um, Deathbed, The Bed That Eats People. Yeah, I did watch Deathbed. (laughs) So how wait so how did this all come into the script and and why why did it not play? Um I think one of the reasons is because that was my very first script ever that I wrote and so um it there were a lot of just like really rookie mistakes that were that were made with it, I think. And similar to the Simpsons script, I think that like you put a lot of big ideas into it and a lot of like, you know, trying to like break the form. And so like his idea for this you know, horror movie that was supposed to be about an amusement park where rides go bad and like start killing people. He's like, it's Dante's Inferno. And so the first one is the first level of hell, but then by the end, and it's like, holy shit, none of that makes any sense in this like yeah. omnibus movie. Hmm. Um, but then you actually had a little bit more success on your second script. Yeah. So then my next one, and then I, I had uh, another writing partner and we optioned um, a series of children's books that 
were kind of obscure in England, and they were kind of Harry Potterish uh, in in that zone. And so, we worked together on on that script for about two and a half, three years. And, and is that sort of material more in your wheelhouse? Uh, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think there's an important lesson here about. Finding your passion. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I, th- but and that one, I think that I got a lot better in terms of like coming, approaching a story from a character perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was modest success in in that script. We ended up getting a couple producers interested in it and meeting with a couple people and tr- uh, ended up developing with the producer. They didn't pay us anything. This is um, often the way. Yes. Right? I mean, when you are an un, sort of uncredited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then we, um, uh, it just it, it sort of dying because it, you know, really wasn't that great of a script <laughs> at the end of the day. And I think that's a perfect transition into he wrote that script with a different writing partner and I wrote the Simpsons spec with a different writing partner. And we like to quote uh, Matt Weiner quoting Frank Pearson that uh, it's after your divorce that you figure out what you want in mm-hmm. a second marriage. And the same is true with writing partners. So, so what did you, how did you guys find each other and what did you find in each other? Um, so we are very lucky that we went to film school together. Okay. Uh, we both went to the University of Texas at Austin. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was there that we found out that we both had been to the same first rock concert. Uh, <laughs> Which was? We're both from Dallas originally. We didn't know each other in Dallas, but we both went to uh, the Silver Chair uh, concert. I the think. Freak Show Tour. Okay. It was not Frog Stomp. Not Frog Stomp. There you go. Very important. Local H opened. That was a good oh one. God. Uh, and so, yeah, it was a stepbrothers, are we best friends sort of moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was really clear that, like, in the class that we were in, it was a class where you actually shot on film, and then it was the only class where you edited on film, mm-hmm. like, in the room with the splicers and the tape. And we're young guys. I don't know if you can tell over the microphone, but, uh, you know, cutting on tape like was already 14, passe. <laughs> yeah, this was already well out of style by the time we were doing that. But we just were both, like, really dedicated to, like, learning the craft of things. And I think that that's one of the reasons why, you know, cut to 10 years later and we've both broken up with writing partners. And I think that both of us shared a knowledge that we had our strengths and our weaknesses. And we kind of saw that those were compatible in, mm-hmm. like, the way that they would fit together. I think we also share a need for, like, other people to hold us accountable. I think that's one of the greatest aspects of having mm-hmm. a writing partner is, like, oh, man, I'm going to really let Andrew down if I don't yeah. come up with something right now. For sure. Yeah. Uh, and, well, so let me – let's take yeah. a step back and and let me ask you guys – what strengths did each of you bring to the new partnership? And, and you can answer for yourselves or each other. Um, Whatever is more comfortable. Oh, you sorry. You seem like you like this. Uh, yeah, I think for <laughs> I know that for like one of the so he mentioned us meeting in that film school class at UT, and um, an interesting detail about that is to sort of answer your question in a roundabout mm-hmm. way. Um, I was so they assigned you in different groups at, in the class, and like, and then you just like worked in every like. So there's like a group of four or five people, and then you were working on everybody's short films for the rest of the semester. Anyway, I got put in a group, and I I didn't grow up knowing I was going to be a filmmaker. Unlike t- Taylor, he knew from like 
very early age when he saw Jurassic Park that I'm going to be, this is what I'm going to do. That was not my case. And so when I went to, when I got into film school, I was very new to it. And Taylor was in a group of, with other filmmakers. And I was like, oh, those guys know what they're doing. And my, my group didn't. And so they I. They were the burnout group, to be <laughs> fair. <laughs> and I didn't feel like I was like learning. So I wanted to be in a group where people were smarter than mm. me and knew better than me. And so like after the first like round of projects, I just like bailed on my group and just went up to them like, can I just be in your group? And they're like, yeah, sure. <laughs> it's okay with the teacher. And I got. You like, you like Frog Stomp, right? That's, <laughs> that's the material we need for this group. <laughs> and so. Um, so then carry that over to to answer your question. Like for Taylor, I think that what he brings for me is somebody that like raises the bar constantly and doesn't settle for less. And that's important for me who I have a real deep insecurity about am I good enough to do this? And because it I think it stems from always being in the industry like behind everybody mm-hmm. else because I came to to do this later than most people that I know. And so for me, that really is um, very helpful for me whenever we're writing because I can oftentimes settle on a line, settle on a scene, settle on an idea, and Taylor's constantly like, well, what can we do to make it better? How can this, like, is this the best it can be? And And he's being very kind, and not that I'm actually, like, mean, but, like, famously, I'm, like, very binary, and everything is complete crap until it's good. (laughs) It's like, I hate it. Don't want to do it at all. This is the stupidest thing we've ever thought of. Why are we writing a movie about golf? And then it's like, oh, wait, that's a good idea. All right, now let's keep going. So how do you come around? Like, is it your job, Andrew, to talk Taylor into it, or do do you have to convince yourself, Taylor? Like, how does that happen? Um, it is, you know, a push and pull and a give and take between the two of us as a partnership. Um, I think that half the time, like, it's that one of us will come up with an idea that's good enough or, you know, the other half of the time. And, yeah, this is probably the more brutal on, on Andrew is he has to contextualize or, like, give mm. me, like a like broader understanding of like why something might work. And this isn't the best example, but like with Chappaquiddick, uh, I can say that like I had a line in there about like uh, Nottingham or something else that was like vaguely related to Camelot. And like, A, I had to like explain like why I even was like going in that direction. And he was like, okay, that was horrible, but, like, now what we can do is, and then, like, yes, ending to get to, like, yeah. a really good line sure. that ended up with, like, Camelot and something that made sense. Mm-hmm. So well, That makes sense, for yeah. sure. Totally. Um, so, so what does the process look like? And, and uh, I assume Chappaquiddick was typical of your process. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Forward. So what does that look like? Uh, you know, once the idea sort of takes hold. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to get a little techie here, and yeah. uh, we're going to lose our final draft sponsorship. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we write in Google Docs. Uh, well, let me just interrupt real fast. Sure. I definitely want you to get to that. Sure. Just to lay the foundation. Yeah. We are a long-distance writing partnership. So we oh, moved, we moved to L.A. together after we graduated college and lived together for six years. And then I moved back to Austin, Texas, where I currently live. And so because of that... Yeah. Should, I, should we tee up the final draft thing again? Should we edit? So that we, <laughs> no, but, no, no, uh, no that, that's interesting. So at what point did you move back to Austin? 2011. 
Okay. Yeah. And you guys were already working together. At that point, we were not. Um, we, we had been roommates that entire time. Okay. but And then that was around the time that uh, he was working on his Simpsons stuff, and I was working on that, like, Harry Potter-esque, you know, thing. Well, that's another thing. And, like, you know, believe you me, we're going to get into process. But I do want to, like, <laughs> no, finish the answer on, like, one of the things that yeah. make us, like, complimentary writing partners. And that's that um, Andrew actually started his, like, career in earnest uh, as a producer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he knew from, like, a pretty young age that that was, like, a skill set that he had that was much better developed than, like, all of us sort of, like, yeah, la di da sort of creative types. Well, in those, like, filmmaker groups that we were in, like, you know, you sort of have to produce your own movies that you direct in film school. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so I would hire, you know, hire I'd make Taylor <laughs> and people like him work on my sets and then they would run pretty smoothly and they'd be like, oh, wow, we finished on time and got everything done. And you fed us. Uh, you should do this for us. And so that's kind of how I sort of fell into producing in film school, which was gotcha. doing that for other people because I was able to, I don't know, I just had a knack for organization and getting a team together and mm-hmm. running things smoothly. And after like kind of like bumping your head against the wall in L.A. for six years, then you moved to Austin and you immediately ended up finding your way to producing uh, the first movie that you produced that went to Sundance. Yeah, I produced <laughs> a movie called Hellion, um, directed by Kat Candler, starring Aaron Paul and Juliette Lewis. And then... Also that same year, uh, I was a producer on a short film called Rat Pack Rat, um, directed by Todd Rohall. Um, it's a really, really Steve, hilarious short. Steve little in it. Um, and that one won the Grand Jury Prize uh, for Unique Vision that year. And so, like, I think that, like, Andrew brings a lot to the table on, like, the practicality of things. And, like, I don't ever find writing with him to be limiting, but, like... Again, I think he provides a context for, like, what we're trying to do and that, like, when you, like, might find yourself in, like, a 180, 200-page document, it's like, how do we, like, get this into a manageable, producible arena? And then for me, I come from the editing background and, like, I've been editing for 10 years now and, like, really seeing, like, how deep into a scene you want to get in and how early you want to get out and like seeing how much movies get reshaped. And I'm really lucky I got to work on uh, the edge of 17, which was produced by James L. Brooks. And I think Mm -hmm. kind of famously, he likes to like really shape things in the editing room from like a six hour cut down to a 90 minute cut or two hour cut. And so like that's stuff that now, like I think that like Andrew and I are really good at like hashing out on the page together Mm. between drafts. And I think that, that really, you know, takes something that, like, can be sort of squishy in that first draft into something really strong hmm. after we polish it. Interesting. So, um, so, how, so I think we can get back to why Chappaquiddick. Mm. This is a good time to do that, yeah. <laughs> um, so, cut back to Andrew and I living together in L.A., and uh, it's 2008, and uh, it's actually still the presidential primary and um, Ted Kennedy endorsed Barack Obama instead of Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. And at the time, it was widely expected with the connections that the Kennedys had with the Clintons that he would endorse Hillary. And, and that Hillary was the front runner at the time. Yeah. And so the momentum really started to change after that. And seeing that happen, uh, we were watching Real Time with Bill Maher. And Bill was saying, 
oh my God, Ted Kennedy has changed presidential history again. Yeah, like he was going to be president in 1972 and now he might have just gotten Barack Obama the nomination instead of Hillary Clinton. And he's like, you know, if it hadn't been for Chappaquiddick, I think he would have been president. And I had never heard the word Chappaquiddick before. And I considered myself to be like a pretty well-educated, pretty smart guy. And at 28, I was just like, the Kennedy family is like such an important part of my life. How have I never heard of this? And so me and Andrew, you know, opened up the laptop, got on the Google machine and typed in like Chappaquiddick. And I guarantee you we probably misspelled it at the time. Sure. And, you know, up pops this Wikipedia, which we joke is the most reliable source of information on the internet, which it is not. But the Chappaquiddick page is like reasonable enough in terms of like you get the broad strokes of like something, you know, terrible happened that weekend. And, you know, Really, I thought that there were a lot of questions that I still had unanswered. And one of the biggest ones was, like, why have I never heard of this? Hmm. And, um, you know, what, like I said, Andrew and I both were uh, raised in Dallas, Texas. And so, like, I think a big part of living in the city of Dallas is the Kennedy family and the Kennedy legacy. Mm-hmm. Like, you end up driving through Dealey Plaza, like, sure. on any family vacation. And so, like... Andrew and I had grown up a little bit fascinated by the Kennedys, but we had always asked ourselves the question separately of, like, why have I never seen an actor play Ted Kennedy? Isn't that weird that I've seen, like, five JFKs and, like, three Bobby Kennedys? But I've never seen, like, even, like, in a movie where you show the whole family, it's like, maybe you see Ted as a kid for, like, a second. And he's such an interesting person. Like, you know, at the time, he was already, like, the line of the Senate in 2008. And... We just kind of put a pin in that as like, oh, that's an interesting idea. Like, maybe we'll get to that at some point. And then, like, six years later, after we broke up with our other writing partners, we were like, what is it that we would really want to write? I think one of the problems with us as writers at the time, as we've already discussed, is, like, putting our efforts into things that we weren't right for or we weren't passionate about for other reasons. And... This was an opportunity to be like, what? what is the last script? What am I dying to write that I just like can't you know, contain? And we decided to write Chappaquiddick. Well, and I also think that um, the things that we were working on, too, um, we weren't necessarily, like to what he was saying, writing a, in the, for, with passion or for passion. It was like a means to an end, like, oh, there's an opportunity here. Like, I can maybe get this horror thing done because X, Y, and Z, or... I my the business side of me is like I'll option children's books. Harry Potter's real big right now yeah. with the kids, <laughs> you know. And then like, oh my uh, connections with the Simpsons, I can potentially you know mm-hmm. get this spec uh, read by people, and and so I think that rejected by people, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I think that asking the question for ourselves, like, what are we passionate about? What do we want to do? And not worry about what where the script is going to end up, but just that we wanted to write something that we thought that we could really tell an interesting story mm-hmm. because when we started it, we literally thought no way in hell this will ever get made. Mm-hmm. And that the best case scenario is that like it would get passed around and people would think that these guys can write pretty good. Like that's literally sure. like what we thought would be the best case scenario. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so how did you start to dig in on this? Um, so we are very fortunate because um, Chappaquiddick is referred to sometimes as the most well-documented car accident of all time. Mm. And so we did have a wealth of research at our fingertips to, like, start with. 
But one of the things that was really important to us when we started was we didn't want to make a conspiracy movie. Mm-hmm. We didn't want to make a movie built around hearsay. And so we were really lucky that we were able to, you know, freedom of information, you know, find the actual court transcripts for the inquest into mm. whether a crime had been committed that weekend. And my father is an attorney, so it was <laughs> helpful in that sure. regard. No, actually, it's yeah, always good to have a lawyer in the in, in the, the family. Yeah. yeah, no, I think as we end up talking more, like the fact that Andrew is raised by a lawyer and that he like you know really does look up to his dad. Like, I think that that influenced how we wrote the script a great deal, mm-hmm. and you know we'll get into that in due time. But well, I guess I, I mean, you raise an interesting point, which is the story you wanted to tell about this event and mm-hmm. the story you didn't want to tell about this event because there are any number of versions of this, right, of this movie. So why not a conspiracy story? Why not a thriller? Why not, you know, a sort of uh, full-life biography? How did this become the story that you told? As far as the conspiracy movie goes, uh, the joke that me and Andrew, you know, made even at the time was like, Oliver Stone has already had his, you know, chance at the Kennedy family, so we don't really want to do that again. And, um, you know, I think that a famous thing amongst writers for biopics uh, is that nothing is worse than the cradle to grave, you know, aspect. We watched a couple of those at Sundance this year. Uh, there was a writer dying of what might have been tuberculosis, and boy, howdy. Um, but uh, the great thing about Chappaquiddick, and I think the great thing about any movie about a real person, is that it really is an event that in seven days, and that's the period of time the movie covers, is one week of Ted's life. Uh, you really do see how he changed and how it had a permanent impact on the rest of his life. And so we did hope, you know, in telling this story that even though we weren't going to discuss, you know, things like the assassination of JFK in the movie, that you would feel all that legacy and all those, you know, weights on Ted's shoulders at the start. And then you'd see how the Chappaquiddick incident ends up changing him and making him from the potentially ambitious presidential candidate into the, like, great senator that he ended up becoming. I think that that was, like, our North Star, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of how to focus his character and focus the mm-hmm. themes of the movie from the start. And I think just in terms of our sensibilities, um, telling a, a, a story in that as short of amount of time as possible is just what we gravitate towards as as I don't remember what writer I'm quoting but I do listen to a lot of uh, podcasts including the writers panel podcast <laughs> and somebody at some point said that anytime somebody goes to sleep you're losing drama and I'm like man that's true and so it was just like okay like I definitely want to always on anything we're doing try to keep it as contained as possible hmm. And, like, even on the script that we're writing right now, it covers, like, 43 years of time. But we actually use a device where it's mostly taking place in one day. Hmm. And that, like, even though there are, you know, critical story flashbacks to 43 years of other time, that, like, because the through line takes place in one day, it feels like that tension is Mm -hmm. always there. And I, I I think that, you know, seems to be helpful as we're going through it to Mm -hmm. just keep it going. All right. So that makes sense. So then getting back to the process question, I assume you had, you guys sort of work all this stuff out over Google Docs. Yeah. Uh, You figure out what the story you want to tell is. Does that start to turn into an outline? 
Yeah, so um, we are rigorously and thoroughly all about outlines, um, and uh, I, I just couldn't start the actual process without one. And I think that even though you, like, find that, like, okay, like, you know, this scene goes into this scene and this scene goes into that scene, it doesn't mean that you actually can't just come up with an all-new scene. Mm-hmm. And, like, in Chapo Quiddick, um, there's a scene where Joe Gargan, played by Ed Helms, is uh, sitting by a window with uh, Cricket Keo, one of the Boiler Room girls, and he's telling her, he's he's flirting with her, and she ends up asking him about Bobby Kennedy, and he's like, oh, you know, Bobby actually taught me how to s- sail. Mm-hmm. We were brothers. And the reason that scene got written at all was that, like, we had gotten 30 or 40 pages into the script, and I knew that the audience didn't know everything that we did about Joe Gargan and his intrinsic important relationship with the family and that Joe Gargan had suffered a tragedy like the Kennedys and that his parents died at a young age and that he was essentially adopted into Mm. the Kennedy family before he was 16. And so I was like, they need to know that because what's about to happen next is that Ted's going to come back from this accident and he's going to ask Gargan to help him with something that is morally dubious and or at least handle a situation that isn't morally dubious, morally dubious in a unethical mm-hmm. way. Yeah, like pick your poison. Um, and so I knew that to understand why he was doing that, we needed that scene, and that was not in the outline. Mm-hmm. And I remember, like, it was something that, like, you know, Andrew lives in a different time zone than me, so like he's going to bed at one a.m. and it's eleven o'clock my time, and I'm like, I'm just gonna keep working for you know a little bit longer. I think that, like, whenever you woke up the next morning, that scene was, like, kind of, like, halfway in there. And you're like, this is good. (laughs) So I was like, oh, awesome. Like, and being able to, like, have something as your roadmap, Mm -hmm. but to be able to always take unique exits and see Carl's Bad Caverns and whatever it is. Yeah, I think that, like, we, or, you know, definitely me, um, need an outline to be able to... um, have as a baseline to then improvise off of mm-hmm. while you're going through the script. Because um, if I was just winging it from the start, I mean, it would be all over the place. As opposed to, like, I have a North Star, I'm following something, but then uh, while, you're, while you're writing this actual script, like, you're also discovering as well, and mm-hmm. new ideas are coming up, and then because you've got the roadmap in front of you, you can then pivot however you need to. And the other thing that I'll say, you know, because we've talked about, like, why it's fun to, like, be able to go off of the roadmap. But, like, the roadmap gives me some of the blocks that I need to just understand, like, why this is going to pay off in the end. And so, like, for us, I think that before we started, if we didn't know that we were ending with Ted giving a live televised speech to the entire country... I don't know that we would have been smart enough to know that the movie needed to open with him giving a news interview mm-hmm. on that Friday. And it happens to be true that he actually did give that interview on the Friday and then mm-hmm. was on TV the next week, you know, doing a live broadcast. And for us, like, knowing going in what our ending is gave us the opportunity to have that symmetry and that bookend. And, sure. that and research is really sense. important to that process as well, particularly with something based on a true story. Um, we started reading the inquest um, before we started outlining, mm-hmm. and then continued to reread that as other, as well as like other 
research materials while we were outlining. And that was really important for this project because when you start bouncing out ideas, bouncing around ideas, you know, you, you definitely have bad ideas and, like for a long time, we weren't sure what the main relationship of the movie was, and we was, we thought Joan Kennedy yeah. was going to be a major character in this movie because it's like, oh man, the scandal, and it's his wife, and she's pregnant, and like right. it's going to be so great. Joan Kennedy has one line in the movie. Yeah, now it happens to be the line of the movie, <laughs> but yeah, that doesn't mean that it isn't just one line. But yeah, but then us understanding who Joe Gargan was, what his relationship to the Kennedy family mm-hmm. was, what his, um role was in the Chappaquiddick incident, as as we uncovered that research, it became very clear, like, that's who the main relationship hmm. with Ted is going to be. Sure. And I'll also say uh, to what Andrew was saying, like, it is so important for us to, like, have that outline and then actually be starting the script, page one, fade in, and then your nighttime reading is still that thousand-page tran- transcript mm-hmm. of the inquest. And it's only after you've read a thousand pages for the third time that you really start to see some of the nuance of, yeah. like, this testimony. Interesting. And, uh, yeah, no, you know, Joe Gargan's testimony at the end of the day was, you know, fundamental to, you know, not only his character, but the perspective with which mm-hmm. we, we found our way into the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Um, so you you have this outline that you share, and then you so you don't use final draft. So is the script being written in the outline? Are you turning the outline into scenes in that same document? We didn't used to have it in the same document, but I also write on an iPad, and it's very hard to have multiple Google Docs yeah. open on the iPad. Google, if you're listening, please change this. <laughs> but so now we do actually like have the outline open, and also because Andrew is uh, the you know, more accountable one, uh, he has dates for like, you know, this scene should be done on this date as we like go through the outline. Uh, and we just rarely like, ever did those deadlines get hit. <laughs> sometimes they do though, and that's when it's really cooking. Uh, but no, um, like we we are so happy and fortunate that John August created uh, Highland and Fountain mm-hmm. as the like tools for a screenwriter to write in plain text. And like I can't tell you how many times like. I have, like, been on an airplane and written just in my notes and being able to use, like, his, like, you know, very interesting, you know, real text sort of format to be able to, like, then plug it in and through his programs turn it into a final draft document that your AD wants. Yeah, you can transfer it from to a uh, FDX or a PDF. It's fantastic. Highly recommend it. Yeah, And, and that's the sort of thing that, like, when we were in production, it was so useful to have a format that, like, we could use anywhere if we're flying to set or if we're flying, you know, back home. Like, we can still be working in a format where the AD the next day has exactly what he needs. Mm-hmm. And it was just, like, I I don't think that we would have been as successful as writers because I think that, like, so much of my process is to be able to do it, like, away from the computer but in a format that I don't have to retype it up later. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, Why is that? Uh, I, Andrew thinks that I'm crazy. I just find, like, a laptop operating system to be too cumbersome to the writing process and I find it to be too much of a hurdle where I'm thinking about the tool and I'm hmm. not thinking about the words. And I think that a lot of writers talk about it where the goal is to get into a flow and flow 
of stream of consciousness and like instinct for me has to be uninhibited by the tool that I'm using. And I, I find the exact same thing in editing, even though editing, obviously, you know, you got to do it on a real computer. Nobody's editing on an iPad, am I right? right. Uh, but, like, if I'm editing in the wrong tool, if I'm in, you know, let's say at Avid versus, you know, Final Cut, uh, it's just like a real slog where you're fighting the machine to do what you need. And I think the same same thing is true in writing. And... Hmm. The number of times Final Draft has suggested to me a character that I used once on page four on page 60. And it's like, no, I don't want Ralph. Like, come on. <laughs> um, how long did the, the first draft of the script take? And uh, how many drafts did you guys do? Um, so Just we. Start. And how long was that first draft? Yeah, that's yeah, a great yeah. question. Yeah, that's a, that's a funny story. <laughs> um, so we started researching in April. We started outlining in late July or August. This is 2014. Um, And then uh, we knew that we were going to put more sincere effort into this project than like anything we had ever done before. And so I actually flew to Austin so that we could be together to write Fade In. And uh, we went to his parents' casita. It's uh, like right off the UT golf course. And we got to sit outside uh, on their patio and type fade in and, like, write the first scene, which was a shameless Aaron Sorkin ripoff that got taken out of the movie very quickly. <laughs> uh, and for that reason, uh, maybe that's one of the reasons why the script ballooned to 196 pages. Oh, my God. Um, and it got finished uh, not on time, as Andrew has indicated. Uh, we had hoped to be done by the end of 2014 and have it done in you know three or four short months. But ended up getting done, uh, I think, January 12th of 2015. Okay. So, I mean, that is like six months on the script. Well, How? we had, just to yeah. give a little flavor, we also both had full-time jobs during that. So this is so, my question. Yeah. So you, you were trying to make a living at the same time. Absolutely. Um, what... What did the days look like for you? When were you finding time to write, and how much could you write in you know, any any sitting? Any time that we could, we were writing. And so that was at night, much to my wife's chagrin, at night, on the weekends. My wife uh, travels a lot from Austin to Dallas, and so oftentimes I would be writing in the passenger sheet, seat as she was driving on the phone wow. and with my uh, iPad, on the phone with Taylor while we were writing. So... She was only getting half the dialogue, and so it was really frustrating for her. She (laughs) likes podcasts. She probably would enjoy it if she could hear what was going on. So, But even in individually working on these scenes, you guys were on the phone collaborating. Yeah. On Chappaquiddick, more than, you know, the other scripts we've written, having said that, almost all scenes are written together on the phone. And one of the reasons we picked Google Docs versus other collaboration tools was because you both get a cursor. And I really, really enjoy being able to, like, kind of, like, throw down a lot of text at once and then, like, together be able to, like, go through each line, you know, and Andrew will analyze every single one of my commas and every single one of my periods, and I have just like M dashes all over the place. And <laughs> so it's very useful to like be able to like work on it together in that you know sort of format where we're both you know able to move the ball in a different part of the scene or in the same part of the scene mm-hmm. on the phone together. And we have that outline to work sure. off of, so there's sort of like predetermined like what what we're going to be doing as opposed to just 
freewheeling. And it's mm-hmm. another reason why I think that we need that outline for our process. Yeah. That makes sense. So you come out six months later with this 200-page script. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Then what? Uh, so uh, we do what any young writer would do, which is send it to your friends and you know, hope for you know, them to tell you that it wasn't the worst experience of their life reading 196. Don't change a thing. 200 pages is perfect. <laughs> so this is, this is, you're, you're beating the story here. Uh, so one of the people that we sent it to was a very longtime friend of Andrew's. It was uh, somebody that you worked with on your very first job interning. Yeah, my first job in L.A., I, was, uh, I got hired as an intern for a producer on the Paramount lot and ended up being hired as his assistant and um, became friends with the director of development at that company who had uh, always had really great taste. He um, uh, had run development for Scott Rudin at one point. I think he did development for Judd Apatow. I mean, he's really really smart and I always respected respected his taste and kept up with him throughout the years. Um, Even when he left the industry and became a like, you know, guy who was flipping houses. Like yeah. it was just like, hey, yeah, you know, let's grab drinks and he whatever. He left the industry for a bit and came back and then ended up becoming a manager and I just emailed him and said, Hey, I wrote this script. Would you read it? He was like, Yeah, sure. Um, I was like, fair warning, it's about two hundred pages long. He's like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> and I was like, so if you want to say no, I totally understand. He's like, well, are you lost in the weeds? Do you would, do you need my help? I'm like, yeah. Like I've always thought your notes were really smart. We could really use somebody. 200 pages, yeah. we're in the weeds. <laughs> we, we could really use somebody with your expertise. He's like, Wait, so this is very interesting to me. So you, you, it comes in at about 200 pages. You know that's too long. Oh, for sure. And... You send it out anyway. <laughs> you so, send it to even to friends. Like that's that. You know, work has to be done. So, what are you looking for from the people you're sending it to? Um, what I what I will say is, on January twelfth, we finished the script. Right. On January thirteenth, in my bathtub, I took a very long, leisurely five and a half, six hour bath, making <laughs> notes on the two hundred page document. Um, a lot of people at this point in the story are like, "You must have been very pruny." I was not. I do not prune. Um, He's but a regular trumbo. I really am, honestly. Uh, not in the writing quality, but we both like baths the exact same amount. Uh, I will yell at my children, I'm in a bathtub, which is hilarious if you've seen the movie, which Andrew hasn't. Um, I don't think anyone has. No. <laughs> On Twitter, I have at Taylor underscore M underscore Allen. Please tweet me if you've seen Trumbo and listen to this interview <laughs> because we will be friends. Um, but no, um, so you may, I read, I read in that stuff and make notes and we both agree that the script is terrible. We're like, oh man, this really didn't work out. Finished reading it. We were so depressed. This is is really bad. Why did we do this? We spent all this time. His wife is very upset at him. The script has a nickname that effing Ted, Ted Kennedy script. Uh, and we're just like. Well, what do we do now? And ultimately, we had read enough bad scripts from our friends, uh, roommates, and whatever that it was like, you owe us. Help us out. We are desperate. And I honestly think that the whole thing with the manager was a real flyer. I think that, you know, maybe you asked me, but I don't think that you had, like, necessarily, like, we hadn't really thought it out like this was the right time. It was just like desperation, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just think that we knew we had a long script. We were very unsure of how to fix it and needed 
um, fresh eyes on it. And I mm-hmm. think it was as simple as that. All right. um, and so before before um, you know Chris uh, Coles, who's our manager, uh, to spoil part of the story, uh, he before he read it, uh, like you know our best writer friends basically said, you know it's not as bad as you think. Um, you know, just cut it down and get back to me. I'm not even going to give you any notes because like, just cut it down. And it's like, you know what needs to be done. Yeah. I mean, yeah. (laughs) Uh, I think that maybe there was a little bit of preciousness there, but Mm -hmm. it was really more just like, (laughs) I think it's also a lot of information, right? Like you guys have done so much research and you're trying, it's the same thing as your Simpsons problem. Yeah. 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 You're trying to put everything into it. Absolutely. And so uh, then we did hear back from... Yeah, so we sent... He said, okay, if you're in the weeds, uh, I'd be happy to help you out. Like I said, we're, we're friends. So he was very, very kind, very generous. Send me the script. Give me about a week and I'll get back to you. And so he called a week later. He's like, I read the script. I fucking loved it. Hmm. Like, this is amazing. Um, I really think you guys have got something. Uh, I was like, okay, cool. So how do we fix it? He's like... I don't know. Uh, stuff is really good. Let me um, give me another. I'm going to reread it. Uh, just give me another week. Oh I'm like, okay, great. Um, and he calls back in a week. He's like, I read it again. Fuck it. Let's just go out with 196 pages. If you like, I think that like uh, the could, materials there, producers are going to like yeah, it as like, is. They can if develop you, it. If you're looking for representation, we can we can rep you and. You know, we'll go out. We're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're not going to go out with the 196. <laughs> Under no circumstances are we sending out a 196-page script. And this is the point where, like, logic and reason finally, like, <laughs> applies to, like, okay, we're not as bad of writers as we thought mm-hmm. we were. This script, while completely too long and, like, you know, lost in its own research, has merit. Mm-hmm. And now that I have the self-confidence of, like, somebody in the industry who I consider to be a complete professional telling me that, like, you know, my grammar isn't terrible and my spelling isn't awful, that it's like, okay, let's do the real work. And so we then spent about two months, you know, not working nearly the hours, but, like, working with, like, you know, the same level of passion and vigor to cut it down to... I think 150 pages at that point, yeah. which is still really long. Right. Um, it's a little more reasonable. It's a lot more reasonable. Um, and ultimately, that was the script that we went out with was um, the 150-page draft. Wow. And, um, yeah, it was very surprising to me that at that length, people were still excited to read it. Yeah, so that, that was my next question. Were people reading it? Were you going and pitching it? And then... No, how, how the manager sent it out... Um, uh, in June, and we literally sold it in July. Well, wow. let me. So you know, as I said, like you know, we gave our managers a draft in like m- late March or early April. There was 150 pages, and I don't think the draft changed beyond like a comma or a period from there to June. Mm-hmm. What did we do in between that? Like, why didn't we go out with it? This is the most interesting thing about you know how do you sell a script is you know, a question that I had no answer to at this point. And for them, they said that the sale of the script really depended on people believing the authenticity of what we were writing. Mm-hmm. And for us to be able to, you know, have the like bibliography and the citations to be mm-hmm. able to give give our, you know, scenes the credibility they deserved. So 
what they told us to do was create a bibliography, citation list, all these things. I hated this idea because I'm like, that's not writing and that's not like drama and that's not experiencing it. And so then Andrew, the producer, hired uh, the guy who designed the poster for uh, six years and other projects. That you yeah. Produced. So it's a designer in Austin named Yin Tan who does a whole bunch of um, movie posters. He's mm-hmm. incredibly talented. He's a filmmaker in his own right. He's had a, a movie um, in Sundance. He just got his movie accepted into South by. Uh, and we're really week. big fans of his work, mm-hmm. and yeah. that's why we have to give him the plug because sure. because he did for us something at like such a cut rate that ended up being the thing that I think changed it from a 150 page script that no one wanted to read to a 150 page script that like many people read. And that was that we had the whole script already naturally in our outline in a chapter structure. Mm -hmm. And so the movie opened with a prologue and then it opened with a chapter called The Regatta because the whole incident is because they were there for a sail race. And then, you know, chapter two was the statement. And this was, you know, the police statement that Ted gave to the police Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. And with each of these chapters, we created basically a poster Mm -hmm. and it was very much like a collage of like the newspapers and articles and photos that we had drawn from in our hmm. research. But it was done in like a very like artistic and satisfying pa- sure. fashion. The the posters are actually on my wall now. Like I'm very proud of them. Like That's they cool. they are like I'm so glad that I didn't do them because I get to like hang them <laughs> on my wall and be like, yeah, But nice. but you created this bibliography, which is what you needed, but you did it in a sort of, you know, showy way. Yeah, and I you think that it gave readers easy. it really told them like, oh wow, this is real, this like is yeah. based in truth, that this is <clears throat> um visual. All of these things I think came across um, in a way that just the plain black and white text wouldn't mm-hmm. have. Um, and it gave multiple, and also just multiple meetings we had. They were like, you know, I, I read a lot of words, and these they were, they were nice on the peepers. I yeah, and I, I think that just when development executives and producers are reading, however many scripts they're reading, uh, dozens, hundreds a year, um, something that's that's different and visual, like mm-hmm. really pops out and really stands out, and I think that that very much helped us in terms of when the script did go out in June that people were responding to it because there was a visual element as well. Well, that's great. Uh, Congratulations on it. The movie is out this month, April. And uh, what is next for you guys? Uh, We're really excited about a few projects that we have in development. Um, The thing that we immediately, the day after we finished that draft in March, we were like... This is the next thing. This is, like, what we are dying to tell. Uh, Andrew got to really exercise a lot of his producing muscles, and I learned a lot, you know, watching him do it. Uh, We wanted to option a book, and it turned out that that book had already been optioned by somebody else, and somebody else had, like, already owned certain rights, and it became a real legal quagmire, and we, like, had to work our way through the Byzantine architecture of studio options uh, to finally get to a place where we were able to pitch the producer that already, you know, had access to the rights, Mm -hmm. our take on like why it was a story that like we were really dying to tell. And uh, in the meantime, um, we really made good friends with this woman named Renee Richards, who uh, the story's based on. And um, she is a tennis player. uh, And she, in 1977, uh, played in the U.S. Open, 
And the reason that she was able to play was because of um, the very first uh, case in United States history that uh, was about transgender civil rights. And Renee had lived 41 years of her life as a man, Dr. Richard Raskin, and then, you know, decided that she wanted to make that transition. And in doing that, she didn't want to lose the things that she loved in her previous Hmm. life. And part of that was playing competitive tennis. And so initially the USTA barred her from playing in any like sanctioned events. She ended up, you know, making really good friends with uh, Billie Jean King on the like, you know, um, not the pro tour. How would you describe it? Uh, The Lionel Cup. No, I know. But like, it's like, you know, it's like an exhibition match. Like, you know, she like was playing exhibition matches with Billie Jean King and playing doubles with her and like. Through that relationship, she was able to really make a great case against the USDA for why she'd be able to play. Interesting. And so that was That's the cool. one that we wanted to tell the most, and I'll tell you why. And this is like the thing that like gets me the most excited is like, you know, Chappaquiddick, yeah, you know, we talked a little earlier about like genre. And like, even though it is a true story and it is a character study, we did try to wrap it up in the trappings of a thriller. Mm-hmm. And we thought that that was really important for like making an audience understand and be able to enjoy the process of like watching this you know historical drama. And I think that Renee's story is really great because like you know there are many stories about civil rights and they're all really interesting, but very few of them have the trappings of a sports movie mm-hmm. at the end of it. And so like it's really fun to get to like watch her like kick ass on the tennis court. Yeah. And so, like, you know, for us, it's just kind of, like, an interesting way to get into something we're really excited about that's really positive, too. For sure. That's great. Um, And let me just wrap up by asking you what you guys have watched lately, TV, movies, uh, or things you have read um, that has gotten you inspired or excited that you want to recommend to people? Uh, I think it's coming out soon. Um, There was a movie that played at Sundance this year called Assassination Nation. Mm -hmm. And... From the word go in that movie, uh, I knew that it was going to be something really special. Uh, it captures so much of like what's in the zeitgeist right now, and it does so like in a pulpy genre fun way that like I think is going to really connect with like more people than me. And my girlfriend uh, like literally hates the sort of stuff that we are writing. Like whenever I try to watch something that like is genre adjacent to Chappaquiddick, she's like, "Can we please just watch Happy Death Day?" Like I just want to watch something. Like yeah, Assassination Nation is a movie that like anybody, including her, would like love to see. That's also like a very like social political movie, and I just cool. am so excited about. Oh it. great, well look yeah. for it. I'm in the middle of rewatching The West Wing for the fourth time. Are you watching it with the West Wing Weekly podcast? Oh, I should. That <laughs> really is such should. a good idea. That's what I'm doing. I, we're, that we're is. You know what? I might. Four. You just gave me a great idea. I'm going to stop watching. I'm going to catch up on the podcast Do and it. start. But in these dark days of Trump, this is my like liberal fantasy escape uh, right now. That's so, fair. Yeah. I think it is for a lot of people. <laughs> um Thank you guys for being here. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 